Well, this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 3. I'm calling an audible today and uh, taking us out of our study of Philippians just, uh, just for one week here to look at a, another portion of God's Word that I think is very timely, very relevant for us in light of what we've all been experiencing the last uh, few days here in our country. And the Lord had me just uh, thinking about uh, this particular passage, and I wanted to read it for you uh, this morning and then talk about it and uh, see what the implications are for for our lives as Christians uh, living here in the United States of America in light of all the change and transition that we've been uh, experiencing together. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is writing to Titus who is uh, serving on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And uh, Paul had entrusted him with the responsibility to oversee all the churches there on that island. And so he wrote this letter to um, instruct him and guide him and direct him. And as he wraps up this letter, he has this to say, Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Remind them to be subject to rulers to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But When the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Father, we thank you for how relevant your word is, that even though it was written thousands of years ago, uh, it's as if uh, it was written just yesterday. And the instruction that we find here in this text in particular is is very helpful for us, Lord, as American citizens, um, as we've witnessed uh, uh, the inauguration of of our new president, and as we move forward into a new chapter in in our country, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to remember this morning what you would have us to be and what you would have us to do as those that you've called out of this world as aliens and strangers, that we would be the ambassadors for Christ that you have intended us to be, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you all know, this past Friday, Donald Trump was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. And I'm sure many of you watched the the inauguration ceremony and all the festivities that are part of this really magnificent, majestic, monumental event that happens every four years in our country. 
And uh, I don't know about you, but I was pleasantly surprised and greatly encouraged by the many references to God and how many prayers were prayed in Jesus' name and how much the Bible was read and quoted. It seemed to me like there was an overtly Christian influence in all the proceedings, at least uh, uh, more than I remember seeing or feeling in past inaugurations that I've witnessed. And I think we can thank God this morning for what appears to be a gracious reprieve from the unbiblical anti-Christian liberalism that has been intensifying in our country over the last eight years or so, and, and ultimately from the wrath of God that he promises to unleash upon an ungodly, immoral society that just rejects his word. And I hope this is an indication that God hasn't given us over quite yet. And that we can continue to lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity, just maybe for a little while longer. In any case, I think it's important for us as Christians to remember that while we now have a more conservative president, Jesus is still the king. Amen? And while it's appropriate for us to be grateful and and proud that we are Americans who enjoy freedom and prosperity unlike any other country in the world, we must always remember that we are ultimately citizens of heaven. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, we're going to see this soon in our study, Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, he said, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we all wait for Christ's return, Paul said, as we learned last week, we are to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation and share the good news of life in Christ to those who have yet to hear. We looked at that last week in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul said that we are to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. The question for us this morning is, what is the best way to make the greatest influence in our country? How can we make the greatest impact in our country? Is it being involved in the political process? Is it, is it petitioning our representatives? Is it pushing for new laws? Or Is it simply preaching the gospel? And I would submit to you that our main mission as Christians is not to reform our culture, but to rescue people out of this corrupt culture that, according to Scripture, is only going to get worse. And so we, yes, need to faithfully exercise our duties as citizens of the United States, while at the same time seeking to lead others to salvation in Christ by proclaiming and modeling the transforming power of the gospel as we live lives that are zealous for good deeds. And that's essentially what Paul told Titus to remind the Christians on the island of Crete here in this letter. Notice the first word in our text, remind them. In other words, tell them what they already know. The things that Paul 
wrote here in verses 1 through 8 were not new to the Cretan Christians. They're not new to you or to me this morning. Uh, This is not the first time that we've heard these things. Uh, Paul had already taught them these things, but apparently they had forgotten them. And it was causing them not only to be bad citizens, but to be bad witnesses for Christ. I think we would all admit that as God's people, we have bad memories. Um, We're all prone to forget, and that's why the Bible contains so many exhortations to remember. In fact, one of the main responsibilities or jobs of a preacher is to, to stir people up by way of reminder. That's what Peter said he was doing in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He was stirring up the people, his readers, by way of reminder. I just want to remind you of some things. And that's what Paul was telling Titus to do. He was saying, hey, I want you to stir up the believers on the island of Crete by reminding them of some things that would help them be the very best citizens they can be and, and, and more importantly, the very best witnesses that they could be in their community. And so I want to hopefully stir you up by way of reminder this morning on this um, uh, Sunday after the, the presidential inauguration. And uh, Paul gave here four reminders, four reminders that I think will help us be the best citizens and more importantly, the best witnesses in this lost and dying world in which we live and minister. What are these four reminders? Well, let me just lay them out at the very beginning and we'll look at these one at a time. First of all, we need to never forget our dutiful obligation to the world. Secondly, we must never forget our sinful connection with the world. Thirdly, we must never forget our merciful salvation from the world. And then finally, we we must never forget our powerful mission in the world. I think that's a good summary of what we see in in these eight verses. And so let's look at these four reminders this morning. First of all, we must never forget our dutiful obligation to the world. And Paul essentially lists two responsibilities or, or duties um, that we are obligated to uh, in verses, uh, verses 1 and 2. First of all, we need to be respectful and helpful to rulers and authorities. We need to be respectful and helpful to rulers and authorities. Verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And so he leads with probably the main command in Scripture when it comes to authority, and that is to be subject to, to remain under, literally to remain under that authority. This term was most often used to describe the obligation that a soldier had to to respect and submit to a higher-ranking officer. In the previous chapter, chapter 2, we see that wives were instructed to be subject to their husbands, verse 5, and slaves were instructed to be subject to their masters, verse 9. And apparently, uh, being respectful and submissive to authority was not a virtue of the Cretans. Um, In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 12... Uh, the, the Cretans had a reputation. One of them themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. These were not uh, the nicest people uh, in the world. They prided themselves in their rogue spirit and their rebellion and their lawlessness were notorious 
around the, the known world at the time. In fact, it's not surprising when you consider that this island, the island of Crete, was once a haven for pirates. You can just imagine the lifestyle and, and, and the culture of that, that island if it had been invaded and inhabited by, by pirates. Um, and not only was the, the Cretan culture rebellious against authority, just kind of by nature, but false teachers had influenced the Cretan churches themselves by by their teaching an example to disrespect uh, authority as well. And so consequently, the, the Cretan believers needed to be reminded of their obligation to submit to those in authority over them, whether they liked them or not, whether they supported their views or not, whether they agreed with their decisions or not. That you need to submit, you need to subject yourself to the rulers. Uh, this is coming from a man, Paul, who knew what it was like to live in a world full of tyrants, gross injustices, exorbitant taxation, sexual perversion. And there, are many, there, were, there are many reasons for Paul and other believers uh, in his day to be frustrated with the Roman government and angry at society in general and its decadence. And yet, as Christians, the Bible is very clear. We must respect and submit to the authority that God places over us, no matter how ungodly or anti-Christian it may be. Turn back to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 is probably the classic text about submitting to the government. Romans chapter 13 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of you this because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, Reader all, uh, me, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We also see this same principle in First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. In fact, Kyle has, I think, preached this passage this morning uh, to the the students. First uh, Peter chapter two, uh, verse thirteen. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the president of the United States. Or, excuse me, I'm sorry, it says honor the king, right? The point is that every government in the world, both good and evil, has been sovereignly ordained by God. 
And every ruling official, both righteous and unrighteous, has been placed in that position of authority by God and should be respected as such. That means we should never join in any rebellion against the the government or seek to overthrow it by violence, even when it might fail. We saw a lot of that this weekend. At least some news channels wanted to highlight that the most, it seemed, the rioting and the the protests, and, and uh, how, what are we to think about that? Well, the scripture is very clear on what we should think about that. I would also say this, that if and when a government begins to promote evil and punish good, in other words, they, they flip their role, instead of, instead of um, promoting good and punishing evil, like the scripture says, that is the role of government, if that's the case, it's our responsibility to respectfully remind them of their God-given duty to promote good and punish evil. For example, a peaceful march on Washington for uh, abortion or to end abortion would be an example of a way we can remind the government that they are in existence by God to promote good and to punish evil, not the opposite. I think the most practical way to honor and respect our, our, our authorities is to faithfully pray for them. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, this was the passage that, that Franklin Graham prayed at the inauguration, and um, boy, when he got to verse 5, I couldn't believe it, how boldly he read, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I was like, yes! Wow. But the first I was referring to is verse 1 and 2. For First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so we need to be praying. The, the, the number one application, I guess, of, of this point of submitting and honoring our authorities is we need to pray for Donald Trump. We need to pray for Mike Pence. We need to pray for their cabinet. We need to pray for uh, the, the, the new uh, government leaders. But that's not all. Notice back in Titus chapter 3, we need to be subject to rulers, to authorities, and be obedient. In other words, we should be law-abiding citizens. We, we should obey the laws and pay our taxes. When the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, what do, you, what do you think about Caesar? What do you think? Should we be giving him taxes? And what did Jesus say? Render under Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. So we need to be obedient. Now, the only time civil disobedience is a, a term for disobeying the government, civil disobedience, the only time that that is appropriate or permissible is when the government usurps their God-given authority. The only re- reason why the government has authority is because God has given it to them. But when they usurp that authority and they command us as Christians to do something that God has commanded us not to do, or they command us to not do something that that, that God has commanded us to do, then we must be like the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they were told they couldn't preach the gospel, they couldn't share Christ anymore, and they simply said, we must obey God rather than men. And so we need to be obedient, 
up until the point that the government tells us to disobey. But then we also have to be ready for every good deed. And we should be loyal and contributing members of society, in other words. We should be actively involved in serving our community. We should willingly cooperate with local and state authorities and, and, and efforts to help improve people's lives. We always need to be ready to um, spring into action whenever there might be a need in the community, maybe when a disaster strikes like a hurricane or a flood, that, man, churches should be first in line to, to help. And as a church, we should always be looking for creative, uh, strategic ways to represent Christ in our community. One of the applications questions I wrote down, hopefully you'll get into some good discussions as, as grow groups this next week, um, thinking about how to make application of this sermon is, is you know what, these ideas, these, these creative ways to represent Christ in our community don't always have to come from the top down. The question I ask is, hey, what, what are some ideas you might have as members of this church of ways that we can penetrate this community, that we can serve this community, we can be a light and salt in this community? I think it would be so cool if, you, if some of your grow groups came up with some creative ways, some creative ideas, how you as a grow group, or maybe you could come to the, to the leadership of the church and say, hey, what about this? Have you thought about this? Could we do this? And, and see how the Lord might use uh, your, your discussions to mobilize some, some community effort. The point is this, we, we should have a reputation as a church and as Christians for doing good for others. That's what it means by being ready for every good deed. And so first of all, we have an obligation here to be respectful and helpful to rulers and authorities. Secondly, we also need to be respectful to our fellow civilians. We need to be respectful to our fellow civilians. And Paul, in verse 2, shifted his focus from our obligation to civil authorities to our obligation to our fellow citizens. Notice he says, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty practical in light of all the, the stuff that has been said over the last 18 months and, and uh, what has even been being said this weekend and what may be said as we move into the future. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Uh, listen, our country could use a good dose of that right now. And guess what? We're to lead by example in this. We're to malign no one. We shouldn't slander anyone or insult anyone or ridicule or verbally abuse anyone in any way. We, we, we shouldn't talk bad about other people, period. It says we're to be uncontentious or to be peaceable. Literally, we should be without fighting, is what he's saying here. We should avoid quarreling and arguing. I think, I think argumentative Christians are one of the worst witnesses uh, imaginable, when we're just, just constantly argumentative. We need to be peaceable with others, as Paul said in Romans twelve eighteen. As far as it is up to us, we should be at peace with all men. I'll never forget reading uh, an account of Dr. Harry Ironside, a great uh, preacher of old. Someone tried to pick a fight with him over something he had preached. They didn't like what he preached, and they wanted to argue with him about it, and 
He said this, quote, well, dear brother, when we get to heaven, one of us is going to be wrong, and perhaps it will be me. You can't fight with a humble attitude like that. And so we need to be peaceable, but also gentle, patient, having a forbearing attitude, or as one uh, person put it, a sweet reasonableness. We need to have the ability to defend our beliefs and our convictions humbly and graciously and calmly without getting upset or offended. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I love what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter uh, Two, verse 24, he said, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Listen, we are rubbing shoulders with people every day in this world who are in the snare of the devil. And they're being held captive by him to do his will. And so we need to graciously and gently and humbly, in a very Christ-like way, correct them. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. And the reason why they, we need to keep in mind the whole time, the reason why they believe the way they believe and think the way they think and live the way they're thinking or live the way they're living, their lifestyle is the way it is, is because they're not saved. They're under Satan's control, and so why would we get mad at them? I'm not saying it's not their fault, but there's, we know, we understand there's a lot more going on in that situation. So he says, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. In other words, just be kind and, and considerate towards, towards other people, even those who are ungodly and immoral and contributing to the corruption of our society. We need to demonstrate humility, not hostility. We need to display meekness, not meanness. There's another question I ask on that application sheet. And it's a convicting question for me. And that is, are are unbelievers your enemy or your mission field? Are unbelievers your enemy or are they your mission field? In other words, it's often easy to say, well, those guys are my enemies. I need to believe that. And they're liberal and they're this. and They're they're, they're the enemy. No, No, they're your mission field. And so we must never be demanding of our rights or retaliate when maybe they, uh, you know, insult us or injure us. We need to treat them like Christ would treat them. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Remember? Gentle and humble in heart. Paul himself 
appealed to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 10, 1, he urged, he said, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so the first reminder here is that in order for us to be the best citizens and the best witnesses in this lost and dying world in which we live and administer, we must never forget our dutiful obligation to it. Our dutiful obligation to it. Secondly, secondly, we need to never forget our sinful connection with the world. Our sinful connection with the world. Notice verse 3. For which is Paul's way of introducing the reason why we should be kind uh, or, be, or should, should be the kind of citizens that, that, that Paul described in verses 1 through 3. Why is that? For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Basically, what Paul's doing in verse 3 here is he's reminding the Cretan Christians what they used to be like before they were saved. And Paul liked to do this, by the way. This was something he did frequently in his letters. He would, he would remind his converts of their formal sinful state so they would never forget from where they had come. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think sometimes we, we as Christians suffer from spiritual amnesia. We forget what we used to be like before we got saved. And I think one of the keys to relating to unbelievers in a, in a Christ-like way is to remember that, that you were just like them before you became a Christian. There was no difference. And so rather than becoming enraged and incensed by the, the liberal and immoral agendas of organizations and companies and movements and, and individuals, we need to remember that we were just as bad as they are and would still be if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God. Amen? Amen. And so Paul described our, our sinful depravity here, and it's not pretty. Look at it. This is a, a sevenfold description of our past sinful condition apart from Christ. First of all, it says we were foolish ourselves. We were foolish ourselves. We were senseless. We were without understanding. We, we didn't think straight. We thought we knew all the answers, and, and yet we were ignorant of the true meaning and purpose of life. We had no spiritual discernment, and so we were foolish in everything we thought and every way we acted. Just like it says in Romans 1, verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's a description of, of us before we were saved. And so we were foolish ourselves. We were also disobedient to God, to everyone else in authority over us, whether it was our parents, our teachers, our, our bosses, our, the police officers. We, we were stubborn and hard-hearted. Look at chapter 1, verse 16, talking about the Cretans here, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That was us before we were saved. Not only were we foolish and disobedient, we were deceived. We were deceived by our own foolish reasoning, by other ungodly people, and ultimately by the devil who is the master deceiver. 
And all these things served as false guides that that led us astray from the truth. And we were always just taking wrong turns and ending up on dead-end streets. And we were just essentially living a lie. And not only were we deceived, it gets worse. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were slaves to all kinds of, of fleshly desires. We were controlled by our, 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 our bodily passions. We, we did whatever our body felt like doing, and, and we didn't know how to say no to the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 12, here in Titus, says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I think the NIV says, teaching us to say no. It's only by the grace of God that we can say no to our flesh and to our sinful habits. And so we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, and then we were spending our life in malice and envy. We were constantly putting other people down and coveting what they had, and, and we, we just wanted bad things to happen to them, and we rejoiced when, 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 when something bad happened. We were just bitter and jealous. We were exploiting others for our own gain, and it says we were hateful. Maybe in light of the context, uh, the next is, is hating one another. We, we were just hateful or maybe hated. Our, our evil, self-serving attitude caused others to hate us, to despise us, and we were offensive and disgusting and repulsive to other people, but the feeling was mutual. Hating one another, our, our sinfulness resulted in mutual animosity. We just all hated each other because we were all out for ourselves. I think it's interesting that these seven vices that Paul lists in, in verse 3 uh, directly correspond to the seven virtues uh, that we see listed in verses 1 and 2. I think he was comparing and contrasting the way we used to relate to authorities and, and, and to other citizens with the way we should relate to them now that we've been saved. And so again, in order for us to be the best citizens, the best witnesses, In this lost and dying world in which we live and minister, we must never forget our sinful connection with it. We used to be just like them. Who are we to sit here self-righteously looking down our noses and judging them? Because but for the grace of God, that would be us. Amen? Number three, we must never forget our merciful salvation from the world. We must never forget our merciful salvation from the world. I love this next word, but. (laughs) We also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. It's like Paul's almost like, like, pushing our head underneath the water and we're just like ready to drown and all of a sudden, just at the last moment when we think we're going to pass out, he yanks us up and says, but, but. And so he interrupts this this dismal description of our depravity with one of the great buts of the Bible. And I think this simple little conjunction here signifies 
God's loving and merciful intervention to save us from our pitiful, desperate situation. And Paul proceeded here in verses 4 through 7 to give a condensed version or explanation of, of how and why God saves people from their sin. And, and, and this is just warning you here. This is a, a strong dose of theology compressed into a few verses. This is like a double shot of doctrinal espresso. It hits you hard and fast. And uh, we could study this, this passage for months and really not even begin to scratch the surface and unpack all the truth that's contained here. And so just for the sake of time this morning and the purpose of this particular message, we're just going to just kind of skim through what Paul said here and maybe return to this at some other point. I apologize for doing this. I would get in trouble if I was preaching this in seminary lab, preaching lab. I had one professor tell me one time when I skimmed over a passage similar to this, he said, what are you doing, Ramey? That's like a prime rib, man, and you're just waving it in front of people's noses and throwing it out to the side. So I'm going to have to do that this morning, but hopefully it'll whet your appetite and you can dig in deeper here on your own. But what, what is going on here in verses 4 through 7? I think Paul explained three aspects of our salvation. Uh, he talks, first of all, about who is the producer of our salvation. In other words, who saves us or what saves us. And secondly, he talks about the process of our salvation, how we're saved. And then thirdly, he talks about the purpose of our salvation, why we're saved. And so let's look at that those things one at a time. First of all, the producer of our salvation. Who or what saved us? Answer, God is the sole producer of our salvation. Salvation originates with him and him alone. He initiates it and he accomplishes it all by himself. Why is that true? Well, we know he is sovereign. And the scripture talks about the sovereign election but more than that, it also talks about the fact that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, which means we can't do anything to save ourselves. God had to do it all, and therefore he gets all the credit, all the glory for our salvation. And notice, as we go through these verses, how Paul made sure to include how, how or highlight, I guess, how each member of the Trinity played a distinct role in our salvation. Notice he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. It was the kindness of God that saved us. Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, that God saved us in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 3, those who are saved, Peter said, have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you're saved here this morning, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, God has been kind to you. And so he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior uh, and his love for mankind appeared, the, the word for love there is not the word agape, which you might assume it would be. It's the word uh, philanthropia, philos, 
where we get the word philanthropy, when you think about what's philanthropy, it's, it's, it's just having a compassion to desire to meet a need that you see, and that's exactly what happened. God had a compassionate desire to meet our need of salvation, to deliver us from, from pain and trouble. God had pity on our helpless, hopeless, sinful state, and he demonstrated his love towards us by sending his son to die as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven and be rescued from death and hell and spend eternity with him in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it says, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. And I think... Um, the word saved kind of loses its meaning, its impact, its significance the more we use it. And we've used it a lot as Christians. Yeah, I'm saved. And oh, they got saved. And, and uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul that wrote a book uh, that took on this issue. And the title of the book was Saved from What? What are we talking about? Saved from what? Well, the idea of salvation is being rescued from God's wrath that will one day be poured out on all those who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.36 says, if you have the Son, right, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on them. That's what you're saved from. And notice Paul just wanted to remind us here, as he always seemed to do whenever he brings up the doctrine of salvation. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. God didn't save you because of anything you did. Not even the good things that you've done. You, and you've done some good things. But the Bible says even your good things, your righteous deeds are like filthy what? Rags to God, Isaiah 64, 6. Listen, none of us will ever be good enough. I don't care how good you are. You might be a good person, right? You will never, ever be good enough to get to heaven. Why? Romans 3, 10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. The only way we can get to heaven is to acknowledge that we are unrighteous. We don't have the righteousness required to get to heaven. We need the righteousness that God provides us through faith in the work of Christ in our place. And so he says he saves us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. In other words, God chose not to give us what we deserve. We deserve nothing but his wrath. And yet God, being rich in mercy, provided a way for us to avoid facing his wrath against our sin. And so God delivered us from a life of sin purely by his sovereign grace and mercy because he is the producer of our salvation. He's the producer of our salvation. But Paul goes on to talk about the process of our salvation. What is the process that God uses to produce our salvation? How are we saved? Well, he goes on, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by, here we go, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, brings us back to life. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. He comes and the Spirit comes and gives us a spiritual, uh, you know, mouth to mouth resuscitation here. He causes us to be born again. That's the idea of regeneration, a, a rebirth. And Paul likened this mysterious rebirth to a spiritual cleaning, uh, taking a bath. He says, by the washing of regeneration. And I think the idea here is that the moment that we're saved, we're cleansed from all of our sin, past, present, and future. Completely clean. Uh, Paul was not referring to the need to be baptized in order to be saved. Some would uh, interpret it that way. Baptism is simply a symbol of the spiritual bath that, that, that the Spirit of God gives us through the Word of God when He regenerates us. And that's all we do. We get baptized to kind of show what has already happened. Um, and so the Holy Spirit cleanses us by illuminating our minds to understand the Word of God and, and applies it to our conscience. Our conscience. And so, so the tool that the Spirit of God uses, the instrument that God's Spirit uses to regenerate us is the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The Word of Christ or the Word of God. And so we are saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit makes us into a totally new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. And at the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence within us and begins the process of renewing us and, and remaking us into the image of Christ. And we know this transformation that is produced by the, by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, we call that what? What is the process? Sanctification. And so we're saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, we've seen God, the Father, and then we've seen the Holy Spirit. Now uh, Paul is highlighting the role of Jesus Christ in our salvation. And what was the role that Christ played? Well, after ascending back to heaven, Jesus kept his promise to send the Holy Spirit. He did that on the day of Pentecost to perform the, the, the or to accomplish the salvation that he had purchased through his death and resurrection. And when Peter was asked uh, to explain, what is all this craziness? You're all speaking in different languages. Are you guys been drinking? Peter's like, come on, it's only nine in the morning. He says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both now see and hear. You're witnessing uh, the Holy Spirit. And so we see the producer of salvation, the process of salvation, and then look at the purpose of salvation. Verse 7, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. That's the classic concept of justification. It's a judicial act whereby God declares a repentant sinner righteous or innocent because of their faith in the finished work of Christ on their behalf. So God transfers our sin to Christ's account and at the same time transfers Christ's righteousness to our account. It's called justification. And so consequently, we are considered innocent, and therefore we can no longer be punished for our sin. It's like double jeopardy, right? You, you, if Christ was already punished, 
we can't be punished a second time if we're in Christ. Notice he says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, the purpose of salvation is that we would be justified by his grace and we would be made heirs, that we would be adopted into the family of God, that we would become God's kids, God's sons, and God's daughters who are entitled to inherit all of his riches, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so the goal or the purpose of salvation is that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, we can look forward to, why did God save us? What was the purpose? So that we could look forward to, with absolute confidence, to spending eternity with God and Christ in heaven for all eternity. This is the blessed hope of the believer. Chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. By the way, as those who look forward to getting what we don't deserve, not getting what we do deserve is mercy, getting what we don't deserve is grace, we receive both, grace and mercy, and so here we are looking forward to not getting what we do deserve and getting what we don't deserve. Shouldn't we freely show kindness and grace and love and mercy to our unbelieving family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers, whether they deserve it or not? Well, they don't deserve that. Well, time out. Did you, did you deserve it? I don't think so. They don't either. You're right. They don't deserve it, but neither did you. But God showed you grace and mercy. Why can't you show them grace and mercy? And so in order for us to be the best citizens and the best witnesses in this lost and dying world in which we live and minister, we must never forget our merciful salvation from the world. From the world. And then lastly, and, and quickly, the fourth reminder here is we must never forget our powerful mission in the world. We must never forget our powerful mission in the world. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. This was a, a way that Paul would draw attention to a significant truth about the gospel that by that time uh, in the history of the church had become a, an established truism in the church. This is a trustworthy statement. Titus, take this to the bank, man. It's true. He said, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things. In other words, these things I've just wrote to you in verses 1 through 7 about the way believers should live and act in an unbelieving world, uh, uh, living godly lives in an ungodly world. You need to speak confidently, he said. Speak confidently about these things. Confirm them continually. Constantly stress them. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't vacillate. But speak with boldness. Speak with confidence. I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God 
those who have fixed their hope on God, those who are trusting in God's provision for their salvation rather than their own goodness, their own accomplishments, their own righteousness, those who have taken God at his word, those are those who have believed. I, I will often ask people, we ask all the new members who join Lakeside, if, if you were to stand, hypothetically, if you were to stand before God someday and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? It's just a question to kind of get them to respond and what are they trusting in for their salvation? And I'll tell you, my answer would simply be because God, by your grace, I took you at your word. I believed what your word said. You said these things in the Bible that I was a sinner and I deserved to die and go to hell, but that you loved me enough that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. And he rose again from the dead. And if I was willing to, re, to, to turn away from my sin and, and place my faith in Christ alone for my salvation and commit my life to follow and obey him as my Savior and the Lord, uh, then I would be saved. And so I, I just did what you told me to do. I just believed that that was true. Those who have believed God, he says, that they would be careful to engage in good deeds, that they would consider carefully, they, they would ponder thoughtfully, In other words, they would take the lead in doing good for others. And I think as Christians, we should lead the way when it comes to to meeting the needs of others. We should always be thinking of strategic ways that we can serve our community. That was, again, the challenge in those application questions. Hey, come up with some things. Come up with some ways that we as a church or you as an individual can, can make a strategic impact in the community. I think... Churches should have the reputation for being the most caring, helpful group around. And again, the reason why God has called us to perform charitable acts and give generous gifts is to attract the attention of the world, not to us. Oh, look at them. Aren't they nice? Aren't they generous? No, to him. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they might see your, what, good works and glorify you, pat you on the back, give you the Nobel Peace Prize? No, so that they might, what, glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, our our motive for doing good works is, is so others will come to know and honor God the same way we do. And when we do good deeds, it demonstrates how the gospel has transformed our lives And it makes them want to experience the same kind of transformation in their lives. I can't help but point out just one other note here that, and don't miss this, okay? Because this is oftentimes confusing and we get it out of balance in our thinking. But listen, look, watch, look and notice Paul is insisting on the necessity of good works in a believer's life at the very same time, in the very same context, where he's emphasizing the free, unearned, undeserved grace of God. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We are not saved by good works, we are saved what? For good works. And when a person is genuinely saved by God's amazing grace, they will naturally become zealous to do good works. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. There it is, zealous for good deeds. 
And so I guess we could say that verse 8 there contains the fourth aspect of salvation. I said there was three, but there's really four. There's the producer of salvation, the process of salvation, the purpose of salvation, and verse 8 is the proof of our salvation, how we know we're saved. It's because we have a life of good works. And notice it says these things are good and profitable for all men. A transformed life, a life that's been transformed by Christ, that is characterized, marked by good deeds, benefits everyone around him. And not only will it be, be beneficial in helping others, but it will be beneficial in leading others to Christ. And that is our mission. That is our mission. And so to be the best citizens, the best witnesses in this lost and dying world in which we live and minister, we must never forget our powerful mission in it. I want you to turn to one passage before we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're talking this morning about Christian citizenship and what does that look like for us as Christians who are also U.S. citizens and, and, and it's kind of a dual citizenship. And, and how are we to work that out? What does that look like? Well, I want us to maybe take this idea of citizenship one step further, like Paul does here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Not only are we citizens, but we are ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. By the way, that's the gospel. Therefore, here it is, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's one thing to consider yourself a citizen. It's another thing to consider yourself an ambassador. I mean, the role of an ambassador, that is a cool role. When you think about our our American ambassadors or U.S. ambassadors, what do they do? They they serve our country uh, as a representative. They go to foreign countries and, and, and they represent our own country's government. And what is their job? Their job is to to bring those two countries together in a a peaceful relationship. And listen, that's our job as Christ's ambassadors. We serve in a foreign land as aliens, as strangers who are here for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to bring people back into a right relationship with God by explaining to them how Jesus Christ made it possible for them to be reconciled to God. We're not here to reform the culture or redeem our society. We're here to reconcile people to God. And so as Christian citizens, our divine mission every day is to beg people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that I trust has been 
a helpful reminder to all of us as we uh, move into a, a new a presidency here in our country, a new leadership team. Uh, um, Lord, we need to be reminded of, of what our role is in, in, this, in this country, Lord, as aliens and strangers. And not only are we citizens, Lord, but your word tells us that we're ambassadors. What an honorable, privileged position that is that we serve. And I pray that we would fill, fulfill that role well, that we would just be always looking for opportunities to, to tell others what Christ has done on the cross so that they could be made right with you and they could have their sins forgiven and they could know abundant life here uh, on this earth and eternal life someday in heaven. And so, Lord, help us by your grace to be faithful uh, to, to never forget these things and uh, grant us grace to live these things out, we pray. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.